Yeah, God bless you guys. Good to see you. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 4? If you're new with us, we welcome you. Just to let you know, we have been doing a study on worship here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. And so far in our study, we have looked at the definition of worship. Just by way of quick review, the most common New Testament Greek word used to uh, translate the word worship is proskuneo, which literally means to kiss toward. And uh, it comes from the ancient custom of kissing the hand of a superior, as when a person would kiss the hand of a king, a governor, or someone of superior rank. But the word was also used to convey the idea of bowing down or prostrating oneself to the ground before a superior is a sign of total submission. Now, when we bring this into our Christianity, we simply apply this into our relationship with God by saying that worship is, first of all, giving God the honor, respect, the reverence due Him as a superior being, of course, but also it involves bowing down of our life before Him in total surrender and submission. Both of these define what worship is all about for those of us who are children of God. So we looked at the definition of worship and uh, the act of worship, and we said that as we got into this point, there's only two kinds of worship in the world, true worship and false worship, or as we've defined it, acceptable worship and unacceptable worship. And this was implied from our text in John's Gospel where Jesus said the Father was seeking true worshipers. Well, we read in verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. The fact that God is looking for true worshipers implies that there must be false worshipers out there, and they're not hard to find. A fact that Jesus affirmed when He said to this Samaritan woman of John 4, in verse 22 He said, You, the Greek is plural, you Samaritans, worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. When the Lord said to this Samaritan woman, you and your people, you worship what you don't know. In other words, your worship is ignorant. You worship a God of kind of your own making. You've developed a system of worship to your own liking. It's kind of a do-it-yourself uh, worship that you've developed. And uh, by saying, you know, you worship you, what you do not know, he was essentially condemning the Samaritan mode of worship, uh, calling it basically false and unacceptable to God. So, you know, under the act of worship, we saw last week, we looked at unacceptable worship. And I'll just read you the main points, and you can go online and listen to the study if you, you'd like. But uh, the first form of unacceptable worship is pretty obvious, the worship of false gods the worship of false gods. The second we looked at was the worship of the true God in a wrong way. Number three, the worship of the true God in a self-styled way. Sounds the same, but they're different. And then finally, the worship of the true God in the right way with the wrong attitude. That's where most evangelicals live. We looked at that last time, so if you want to uh, dig into what more deeply, you can get the CD or go online. That brings us to acceptable worship. And we've already looked at this in the past in this series, but let me bring it up again. When we look, talk about acceptable worship, well, what is that? Well, we don't have to guess. Jesus told us in verse 24. He said, God is spirit. 
And those that worship him, listen, must worship. This is non-negotiable. This is not what if you like, you know, you can... No, this is, if you're going to worship God, you must worship him in spirit and truth. The only kind of worship the Father will accept is, first of all, worship in spirit. Now, let's be careful. Because our Pentecostal and charismatic brothers and sisters, God love them, they tend to define this this way. When we talk about worshiping God in spirit, what they hear is, let everything tear loose. Just, yeah, just let everyone just do what they want. If you try to restrict or keep things, you know, a certain way, you, you're quenching the spirit. And so people, you know, they get crazy in some of these churches. They're yelling and screaming and running around and doing backflips off the pews and hanging off the chandeliers. In their mind, that's worship in spirit. No, that's confusion and chaos, and God is not the author of confusion. And so we have to be careful of that. Um, when Jesus said that the Father is looking for worship, first of all, in spirit. A person cannot worship God in spirit until they are first born of the Spirit. Now, this gets back to something Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3. Very religious guy. And, of course, he probably said this to a lot of different people. In fact, he probably preached it all the time about what it took to become a true worshiper, uh, a true child of God. And uh, he said to Nicodemus, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, this is John 3, verse 3, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or in other words, born of the Spirit, he or she cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, he's talking about salvation. He is saying that unless you're born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, which would also imply you can't be a true worshiper. What does it mean to be born of the Spirit? Well, it simply means this, that in Nicodemus was a very religious man. We've talked about this. He was a man that kept the law. He was a Pharisee. They kept the law down to the minutest detail. But Jesus said nobody ever worked their way into heaven, Nicodemus, through their good works. But the Son of Man has come down from heaven. In other words, Jesus came down to tell us how we might get to heaven. And it's not by our religious works or ceremonies or rituals or anything like that. You get to heaven by accepting Christ as your Lord and Savior. When you open your heart to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, I believe who you are. I believe what you did. You died on the cross. You rose the third day from the dead. And I receive you into my life as my Lord and my Savior. The instant you do that, you are born of the Spirit. You're a new creation. You are now born into the body of Christ. As we said last week, the church of Jesus Christ, you cannot join it. You have to be born into it. Sure, you can join the church on the corner. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about being in the body of Christ. It's what some have called being a member of the invisible church. A lot of folks belong to visible churches. And you folks belong to a visible and an invisible church. Because you're believers in Christ. You've opened your heart and so on. But just so that you understand. And Jesus was saying this. And he's going to be saying it all the time. No one, no matter how religious they are, can offer God acceptable worship if they haven't first been born of the Spirit. In other words, are genuine, born-again Christians. I don't care how religious they are, okay? Um, I don't care how many candles they light and rosaries they pray and ceremonies they go to and holy days they keep. doesn't matter. doesn't matter. And that gets into our next point. 
Because Jesus said the, the only kind of worship the Father will accept is first of all in spirit. In other words, you're born again, born of the Spirit. But once you're a genuine Christian, you still have to worship God in truth. In other words, according to the truth of God is revealed in his word. I won't have you turn to this. We've read it a couple of times. But in Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9, Jesus really nails what we're talking about when he said to a bunch of religious people, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. A lot of folks go to church and sing songs to God. But their heart is far from me. And listen, in vain, they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Guys, this would include religious rituals, ceremonies, the lighting of candles, the praying of rosaries, barefoot processions until your feet bleed as a way of atoning for your sins and ingratiating yourself with God. None of that is of God. None of it is of a God. They're all techniques that man has developed over the centuries with which to worship God. But he never commanded them, authorized them, nor will he accept them. That's what we're talking about. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of ignorance, like the Samaritan woman. You don't even know what you worship. You've got this system of worship you've developed, and, and, you're, and you're worshiping a God of your own making. But you don't understand who the true God is and, and the way to properly worship him. It's like a lot of folks in our society. They get very indignant if you were to say that. Are you a true worshiper or a false worshiper? What do you mean? I'm a true worshiper, of course. Why? I go to church. You know, I do what my church tells me to do. I light the candles. I, I got a Catholic background, so if I keep, you know, with the Catholic stuff, it's coming, you know, from my past, okay? Um, you know, but I, I, I pray the rosary. I, I, I keep the sacraments. Well, that's not what God commanded any so-called worship that is not according to the truth in God's word is going to be rejected by God now. And listen, those who offer it will be rejected by him someday on the day of judgment. Again, the Bible says there at Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man or woman. In the end, thereof is the way of death. You can be sincere, no doubt about it. You can be sincere, but you can also be sincerely wrong. And that's why we wanted to do this series because we're in John 4. And there's no more important topic than true worship, which is the name of this series. And that's why we wanted to present these things, so that you understand. Maybe you can share it with your friends who, uh, you know, go to one of these other churches. So again, in this series, we've looked at the definition of worship, the act of worship. Let's end this morning with another point. We'll call it the heart of worship. Jesus said the Father is seeking worshipers who will offer him true worship. The implication is from a passionate heart. A passionate heart. Let me ask you this, and believe me, I've asked myself this question too, so I'm not just you know, trying to come down on you guys. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would, you relate, how would you rate your relationship to Jesus, 10 being a full-on, totally sold out, and on-fire commitment and relationship to him? And while you're thinking about that, understand, anything around 4, 5, 6 is lukewarm and out of a lukewarm heart worship becomes ritualistic and mechanical not dead necessarily but definitely on life support now i'm not talking to any of you guys because i sit stand in the front row i look forward i don't know what you're doing when you're worshiping hopefully your eyes are closed and you're really focusing on god i have it in churches that during the worship when i've opened my eyes and people are singing 
but they're looking around as they're singing. You can tell they're, they're, not, they're just mouthing the words. And that's the problem, okay? That's the problem. You can go through the motions, but you can also have lost the emotion of your relationship with Jesus. You can read what God said to the Ephesians in Revelation 2, uh, verses 4 and 5, but you can read the whole thing. And basically, this was a church that was serving God, that was going worshiping Him and serving Him, even to the point of exhaustion. And Jesus acknowledged that. But He said, this I have against you. You've left your first love. And I'll paraphrase. None of that other stuff matters if your heart is cold. If you're not doing it because you flat out love me and are passionate about me, then it doesn't matter to me. I want your heart. Appreciate your service. I can get angels to do the service. Doesn't, you know, this is not a big deal. What I want is your heart. I want you to be in love with me. We all love Jesus. But how many Christians are really in love with Jesus? And that's different, isn't it? Now, since true worship starts in the heart, we must constantly check our hearts to make sure that our heart attitude is right. Not only with, right with God, of course, but right with those around us. I'm just going to read these to you. I won't have you turn to them. We don't have time, really. But uh, first one, Matthew 5, verses 23 and 4. Jesus said, So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, then come and offer your sacrifice. And the idea is worship. Then come back and offer your worship to God. In other words, God is, uh, Jesus is saying, look, it's great to want to worship God, but God wants us to be at peace with each other. In fact, John the Apostle said in his first epistle, how can you love God whom you haven't seen if you, can't, if you don't love your brethren whom you have seen? We could plug in family. We can plug in your spouse. We could plug in a lot of things into that. God says, look, if you're not right with, if you're harboring all kinds of bitterness, unforgiveness towards somebody else, or actually the way he words it here in Matthew 5, if they've got something against you and you know about it, best to leave your gift at the altar, go make amends and come back, and you can pick up our relationship at that point. But I think primarily this does get into families, but especially marriage. I'll read you out of Malachi chapter 2 what God said, starting in verse 13. Because the people of Israel couldn't understand why God wasn't pleased with their sacrifice. They're going to church. Why, why isn't God blessing us? I'll tell you why. Here's another thing you do. Here's another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning. Because he pays no attention to your offerings and doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord, the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young. But you have been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. And that doesn't have to just include adultery. It can include something like just emotional, uh, where you're not... Uh, respecting or uh, honoring her um, you know God looks at marriages and he looks at the relationship men have with their wives and wives have with their husbands and if that is really messed up I think we come to church and we offer God worship uh, under a mistaken 
idea. That we can have a lousy marriage that we're not working on and we can still have a good relationship with God. And Peter even said in 1 Peter 3, he said, uh, guys, if you're not dwelling with your wife with understanding, if she's not your primary ministry, you don't cherish her and love her, then what? you know what? Your prayers are going to be hindered. Because God would say to you, get right with your wife. And I would just say that to all the men here. If you want to have a deep and uh, on-fire relationship with God, you have to make sure that you're being the husband that God wants you to be. You are cherishing your wife. You are putting her first. You're making her your primary ministry. And when you're dying to self, and when you do that, then God, you know, starts to really move in your heart with a passion for Him and blessings flow. But don't fall into the trap of many that many people fall into, where you say, "Well, Lord, when she starts changing, I'll change," or God, when He gets His act together, well, then I'm going to start, you know, submitting to Him and being the wife You want me to be. And God would say, no. You each do what I've commanded you to do personally. And when you're faithful at doing what I've commanded you to do, I will step in and begin to work a healing or whatever in the other person's heart. So back in John 4, verse 25, and some of these we've already studied, so I'm just going to read it to get a context. So Jesus is ministering to this woman. He comes to a well near Sychar, a town in Samaria, sits down. He knows a woman's coming shortly to draw water. It's around noon, and it's hot, and he's thirsty. And so he waits, and she comes, and he begins to engage her in conversation. He asks her for a drink. She knows he's a rabbi because he's got the blue, gar- uh, blue uh, um, uh, thing around the bottom of his robe, okay, the the... I can't, my mind, okay? The, the blue strip of cloth, okay? All the way around the rope. She knew he was a, a Jewish rabbi. And so she's amazed that he would ask her for a drink or that he would want anything from a Samaritan because the Jews hated the Samaritans. And so he begins to engage her in conversation. At one point, she realizes he's not just any guy, he's a prophet. And once he knew she was a man of God, the true feelings of her heart came out and she basically asked him, Sir, where can I go to find God? You Jews say Mount, Jerusalem, uh, Mount, um, uh, Mount Moriah in Jerusalem is the place. My people say Mount Gerizim in Samaria. I want to find God. Where can I go? And so Jesus engages this woman in a dialogue. And uh, at one point, verse 25, she said, I know, the, I know the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, at this point, the disciples came because they were in town buying food. So they came with the falafels and cokes and things. And so they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek to the woman or to the Lord himself? Why are you talking with her? Of course, they didn't say that. Verse 28, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him to eat, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Because he says he's got food, but I don't see any food. 
Some of you bring them food? They were clueless. So verse 34, the Lord feels like he's got to clarify. He said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now, guys, this doesn't mean that Jesus had no need of physical food, but rather he was saying that his great passion in life, the thing that he lived for and that sustained him, was doing the will of his father and finishing the work he had given his son to do. Well, in chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus had just fed the day before a whole group of people that followed him out into the wilderness. And uh, it was getting late and the disciples said, you better send them off to get something to eat because they're going to faint here. And it's been like three days, I think, where he taught them. And and Jesus said, well, you know, we can't send them away. They're going to faint and uh, on the way. And, uh, you know, you give them something to eat. So, you know, the, the story. They find a little kid with a sack lunch, uh, five barley crackers and a couple of pickled fish. Jesus blessed it and it multiplied and he fed everybody. They were glutted, it said. They ate till they were glutted. Well, you know how you, after Thanksgiving meal, you're tired, okay? And so they all fell asleep there around the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Well, early in the morning, Jesus got into a boat and sailed across. So when they woke up, the whole multitude, they looked for him because it was breakfast and they were hungry. They liked the idea that he fed them with just small amounts of food, right? So they looked around, where's Jesus? And so they looked across the Sea of Galilee because they were at the northern part. And they saw the, one of the boats over there. So they figured he must have gone there. So some got in the boats, others ran around the, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. They found him. And they said, you know, well, Lord, when did you come here? He said, look, I, you know, you only seek me because I fed you yesterday the loaves and you ate and were filled. You're, you're looking for physical food. That's not why I'm here. He goes on to say in verse 27, don't labor for the food which perishes, physical food. But instead seek after the food which endures to everlasting life. That would be the bread of life, Jesus Christ. That's why he came to give life. Not to feed empty stomachs, to, to fill up empty souls. Look, search, seek the food that endures the everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because, the, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, what God, what God you want to do the work of God, get saved. And then help others to get saved. That, that's doing the work of God, is what he basically said. Don't chase me around looking to have your stomachs filled. I'm here to give you the bread of life, which will save your souls. You see, Jesus knows that man does not live by bread alone. Deuteronomy 8, 3, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And in the word of God, he has clearly revealed his will. And that is from cover to cover, that the lost be saved. In John 6, verse 40, we read, Jesus said, And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So this is the will of my Father. This is why he sent me, that everyone who comes in contact me with me and hears my words would receive eternal life. I mean, this is the Father's work, guys. The work Jesus referred to in John 4.34, which was to basically declare the love of God for this fallen world, and then to go to the cross and die, three days rise again, 
so that the lost could be saved. This is the heart of God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes, not limited to anybody, whoever believes in Jesus would not perish in hell, but would have everlasting life. John 5.30, Jesus said, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus said, I'm only here to do the will of my Father. And again, what was that? He clearly said it in Luke 19.10, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save those that are lost. Guys, this is the Father's will. It's the Father's work. And it must be our work as well. We have been saved for a purpose. Too many Christians think they've been saved to be blessed and to sit and to listen to the wonderful music and to hear messages, excuse me, messages and grow. And so, but, but they don't see themselves as servants. The church has been overrun with spectators. And that's a real problem and it's a real shame. Because we only grow, we only blossom as Christians if we're plugged into a local church and are using the gifts the Holy Spirit has given us in ministry. One author put it this way, said, and I quote, It is sad to see many professed Christians drift through life, like sleepwalkers who never really make the most of opportunities to live for Christ and to serve Him. Jesus said it in John 9, 4. I must work the works of Him who sent me, listen, while it is still day. The night is coming when no one can work. And that was his way of giving us a solemn reminder to every one of us who are Christians that life's day, quote-unquote, is swiftly passing. And the night is coming when our services on earth will be forever over. We only have a small window of opportunity to serve the Lord. As somebody has said, there is only one life that will soon be passed. And only that which is done for Christ will last. Something that Moses actually put his finger on when he wrote in Psalm 90, verse 12. He prayed to the Lord, so Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. You read that and you go, well, wait a minute, Mo. I mean, Lord, teach me to number my days. I don't know how many, I don't know the number of days I'm going to have in my life. I don't know how long I'm going to live. How can I number my days? Well, that's true. And I don't believe Moses was actually praying that, although it sounds like it. I think, put it in our vernacular, I think what Moses was praying is, Lord, give me strength to make every day count. That's how he wants us to number our days. Make every day count. How is that? By walking with purpose and not wasting our opportunities to be used by God. And again, you're thinking primarily winning souls as jesus went on to teach in verse 35 he said do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest behold i say to you lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are already white for harvest now guys this was december in samaria grain crops were planted in november which meant that uh, about this time the grain was about a foot high and listen still green still green it wouldn't be harvested for four more months not until the middle of april so jesus is saying you say there's four months till the harvest but i say to you look 
Lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Now, what, what, what did the Lord mean by that? Well, remember that the Samaritan woman that Jesus had witnessed to and had gotten saved had gone to her town of Sychar to tell the men about Jesus. The gals had kind of shunned her because she had a promiscuous background and probably broke up a couple of marriages. She'd been married and divorced five times. Probably broke up a couple of families in town. So they, women didn't want anything to do with her. So she ran to tell the men about this man she had met who told her everything she ever did, which was a bit of an exaggeration, but okay. Now, while she was gone, the disciples and Jesus entered into a discussion about spiritual food. Now, while they were speaking, the men of Samaria came to the village to meet Jesus and to talk to him personally. Well, you know, they were glad that she told them some stuff, but they wanted to come and see Jesus and talk with him personally. When it says in verse 30, then they went out of the city and came to him, New King James. It's in the imperfect tense in the Greek. and should be translated, we're coming to him. We're coming to him. In other words, when Jesus said to his guys, there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are already white for harvest. The Samaritans, Samaritans hadn't gotten there yet. Okay, they were still coming. And I believe at the very moment he spoke these words to his disciples in verse 35. Hey, look, don't say there's four months until the harvest. Look at the fields. And I believe he kind of pointed at the fields. Look at the fields. And as the disciples turned to look at the fields, of course, between the fields were the road, was the road. And here comes the Samaritans up the road, I believe, at that very moment. And their white robes could be seen over the tops of the green grain. And that's what Jesus was referring to. He was saying, look, you may say the, the, the harvest of grain has four months ago, but look, the harvest of souls for the kingdom is now. And it's always now, is this point. This is the work of God, to harvest souls. Somebody said, don't say in four months, I'm going to get with it. Uh, I'm going to get serious and start to witness. Jesus said, open your eyes and look around you. The time is now. But isn't it true? For some reason, we Christians living in America, I think for the most part, when it comes to witnessing for Jesus, there's often the excuse, well, the timing isn't right, nor is the place proper. Not a proper time or place. Interesting. Solomon said, uh, excuse me, um, Solomon said something along these lines in Ecclesiastes 4 verse, excuse me, 11 verse 4. Listen to what he said. He said, Farmers who wait for perfect weather never plant. If they watch every cloud, they never harvest. And here's the, the paraphrase. We'll talk about serving God. Just like the farmer who said, Oh, it's not a good time to plant today. It's not perfect conditions. Every little cloud, oh, I'm not going to be able to plant today. Well, if you do that, you'll never, there'll never be ideal conditions to plant. So if you don't plant, you don't harvest. And here's the thing, how it relates to us. There's never going to be a perfect time to witness to somebody about Christ. So just do it. Okay, just do it. Because if you say, well, it's just not the right time. I've been praying for this person for a long, but it's just not the right time to, to talk to them yet. Well, that might be the Holy Spirit. 
But often it's just us not wanting to, you know, not wanting to get out there and say something and maybe catch the heat for it or whatever. Look, faith takes, it takes faith and courage to sow the seed, to share the gospel in a world that's hostile to our God and his son. But we must do it anyway, even when the circumstances don't look ideal. And guys, this morning I suggest to you that the fields of Elk Grove, Schaumburg, Chicago, Lombard, North Lake, Arlington Heights are white for harvest. The field where you work, the school you go to, um, the neighborhood you live in is ready for harvest. Maybe not all, but many, which means the work is now. There's no time to waste. Look, we're currently in the fourth and final study in our series, True Worship, as we have said. And currently, we're in the third point of this study, fourth study, which I have called a heart for worship. That's the point we're on right now. When we talk about having a heart for worship, understand that includes having a heart for the lost, because listen, winning souls is a form of worship. Remember we talked about that in our part two study of true worship? We took you to Romans 15, read verses 15 and 16, where Paul, the apostle, said that all the Gentiles he won to Christ, he offered up to God as a form of worship. Winning souls for the kingdom is a form of worship to God. And of course, in Daniel 12, verse 3, we read, Those who win souls are wise and will shine like the stars in heaven forever. Are you wise? What are you investing your life in this morning? Is your life dedicated to the harvest of souls for the kingdom? Very important. And when I say that, guys, listen. I'm not saying that every one of you has to be a Billy Graham or a Greg Laurie or a Luce Palau. These are men that God has called into the ministry of evangelism. They are premier evangelists. We're not all called. In fact, not many are called to be evangelists like that, to stand in front of people in stadiums and preach the gospel. But we're all called to evangelize, aren't we? All of us. Now just hang on to that thought. We'll come back to it. John 4.36 Jesus said, He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Well, that's true. We all have a part in the work of God. I'll read to you 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 to 9, where Paul said something. He may, have been, he may have had Jesus' own words on his heart when he wrote this. He said, I planted the seed of the gospel in your hearts, and Apollos watered it. But it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together with the same purpose. And both will be, both will be rewarded for their, work, for their own hard work, for we are both God's workers. Well, that's true. In fact, Jesus said you, in, in Mark 9, 41, you can't even give one of God. If somebody's a prophet and they're serving God and you give them a drink of water, you'll receive a prophet's reward. We all share in the work. We all have different things we can do. In the work of God. 
There are many people with different ministries that God uses and rewards in the process of saving a soul. Remember that. Well, what can I do? Well, I don't know what you can do, but you can do something. Yeah, but what, what's, you know, so I, I pray for missionaries. Big deal. Uh, that is a big deal. As a prayer warrior once said, prayer is striking the winning blow. Service is simply picking up the spoil. Read how Moses was on top of the mount and her and Aaron lifted up his arms so that the rod of God didn't fall while Joshua and the children of Israel were battling the Amalekites down in the valley. You tell me where the true battle was taking place. In the valley with Joshua and the children of Israel or on the mountaintop with Moses that he held that rod up which, which uh, symbolized intercessory prayer. Verse 36 again, He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Guys, verse 36 does not, does not teach that a person earns eternal life through faithful reaping of souls, evangelism, but rather that they earn wages, in other words, eternal rewards, for faithful service to the Lord, and as they serve Him, they gather fruit. Again, the idea, the fruit is saved souls which live forever in heaven. In other words, there is no greater work a person can do than the work of saving souls because it yields eternal rewards for the sower slash reaper and eternal life for those who receive the gospel. And nothing is more important. Nothing will have a longer lasting impact than sowing the gospel and reaping souls for the kingdom of heaven that both he who sows the seed, he who receives the gospel, they're going to both rejoice together in heaven. In heaven, both the sower and, the, and those who receive the word and become Christians will rejoice together in heaven. One author put it this way, said, and I quote, in, in natural life, the field must first be prepared for the seed, and then the seed must be sown in it. Later on, the grain is harvested. Thus it is in the spiritual life also. First of all, the message must be preached. Then it must be watered with prayer. But when the harvest season comes, all who have had a part in the work rejoice together. Look, very few people ever get saved the very first time somebody witnesses to them. Amen? I mean, you know, you've been there, right? Often it takes multiple times and numerous people to share the gospel with somebody before they receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. Therefore... The one who finally, in this long list of people, long line of people, right? But finally, someone has the privilege of sharing the gospel, and the person says, yes, I want to receive Christ. And they pray with them right there, right? And we, we, if, we're, if we're that person, we might have the tendency to walk away feeling, wow, I'm, I'm pretty, God really used me to bring this person to Christ. First of all, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 7, look, uh, neither he who plants is anything or he who waters is anything, but God who gives the increase. Okay, let's just keep it in perspective, okay? Sometimes we think that, you know, we're the only instrument God has used when we pray for some, with somebody to receive Christ. That's not true. Verse 38. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. The Greek word translated labor in verse 38 
is trans same Greek word translated wearied in John 4, verse 6. Guys, the work of saving souls is hard work. Not just in the sowing of the seed of the gospel into a person's life, but also the accompanying months, if not years, of prayer until the seed penetrates their heart, germinates, and produces fruit. In other words, salvation. Sometimes a person might have been praying for someone to get saved for years. And then here you come along and witness to them. And they receive Christ. And you say to yourself, wow, that was easy. Verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored. You have entered into their labor. There's a story I really would like you to go online and look at. It's the uh, testimony of a man named Christopher Luan. Christopher Luan. And I have to really condense it because we're almost out of time. But um, if you email the church uh, email address, we'll send you the link. Make it very condensed, and I'm going to do it a great disservice, but I'm going to just have to. Christopher's family came over here, I think in the 60s. He was just a baby um, from China. And eventually they became American citizens. And Christopher grew up in a home uh, that uh, was uh, you know, very given over to learning. And uh, his father was a dentist, and so they wanted him to be a dentist as well. And um, again, making a long story short, uh, Angela, uh, Christopher's mother, and Leon, his dad, were married for 28 years, but their marriage was terrible. And they had already filed divorce papers. They were going to get divorced. By this time, Christopher's in college, first year of dental school, and he had been wrestling with homosexual tendencies. Well, by the, this time, he decided to just come out and live an openly gay lifestyle. And so he did. And um, he got into drugs as well. But dental students don't have a lot of money, so he couldn't really pay for his drugs until he began to sell drugs to pay for his own habit. And he became a, a, a supplier for multiple states in the region. Well, in the meantime, his mom and dad's marriage was terrible. But Christopher came home one day and confessed to them that, Mom and Dad, I'm gay. I'm gay. Um, he was very hard to the Lord. Okay, very. By this time, Christopher's parents had gotten saved. Wonderful story. They had gotten saved. And um, I'm sorry, let me back up. I messed up. They had not gotten saved. So he comes home and lays his bombshell on them and goes back to college. And, um, well, it was already strained between his mom and dad. But now it, things really blew up. His dad cussed her out and blamed her for turning their son gay. And Angela decided that there was no other way out just to kill herself. For some reason, she thought she needed to speak to a minister first, and so she sought out some pastor and he talked with her and gave her a track on homosexuality, a gospel track. She buys a one-way ticket I th somewhere in, in Kentucky, I think it was the school. I forgot exactly the town. You'd, you'd know it. It was pretty popular. I just forgot. One-way ticket. She was going to go down there, say goodbye to her son, and kill herself. On the way down, she reads this track and gets saved. Gets down there and calls the number on the track. A woman answers and says that she'd be happy to mentor Angela. I don't know if they got together or if they did over the phone, 
But Angela begins to grow in her faith now. Eventually, the woman is so happy and pleased by what's going on with Angela, the woman takes it upon herself to call Leon, her husband, Angela's husband, to share the good news that her, his wife is now saved. She's received Christ. He told her, this is the worst news I could ever hear. Now God's on her side. But eventually he started going to church with his wife and they, he got saved. And then they started to pray for Christopher, especially his mom. In fact, she had over 100 people praying for him in her church. They joined a BSF group, Bible Study Fellowship. They had all those folks praying for Christopher. Angela would get up, and I, you have, if you watch the YouTube, you see this little cinder block closet where she had a little desk, little post-it notes all over her prayer requests. She would get up early every morning and read her Bible and pray for several hours. Every Monday, she would fast and pray all day for her son, eight years, every Monday. Once she fasted and prayed 39 days straight. She would write her prayers out longhand. And I wrote down one that she had written in her journal. Here's, here's the heart of a praying mother. You talk about the work of evangelism being hard? Well, get ready. She said, and she's praying to the Lord, I will stand in the gap for Christopher. I will stand until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I will stand in the gap every day, and there, and there I will fervently pray. And Lord, just one favor, don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I will never give up on my son, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede, though it may take years. I give you my fears and tears as I trust every moment I plead to you. So she's praying. Now, Christopher has no idea. He is just so bitter. Eventually, his mom and dad went to visit him. They only stayed a short time, and he threw him out of the house. Wouldn't even let him call a taxi from the house, just kicked him out. He was living the total gay lifestyle, having multiple partners every day. He was supplying drugs to multiple states. He thought he was living the big life, okay? He had money, he had power, and so on. Leon offered his son his own Bible before he left. Christopher refused, so Leon left it on the counter before he walked out of the house. Found out later that, that Christopher was just sorting the garbage. They said that they prayed every day, of course, Angela especially, praying for her son interceding. They said in the video I watched, they wondered if God was even hearing the prayers. Because the more they prayed, the worse Christopher got. <laughs> Praise God. It wasn't that God wasn't working. It was that he was working. Because God has got to bring people down lower and lower until they finally break before he can the prodigal son, right? So they're praying. They don't know what's going on except they know things aren't going well. Christopher won't return a phone call. They're sending cards, but he's, not, he's throwing them in the garbage. One day Christopher said, so knock on his door. And he went to his door, and um, 
but this time he's living in Atlanta. Now he is, uh, he is a drug distributor for a 12-state region. <laughs> Knock on the door one morning. He goes to open the door thinking some buddies are there. There stands 12 federal agents, Atlanta Police Department, and two big dogs. They arrested Christopher for selling narcotics. Goes to trial. He gets 15 years to life. They keep praying. They keep praying. He wasn't broken yet. A few months after that, the nurse sends a guard to get him out of his cell, brings him to the nurse's office, sits him down, says, your blood tests have come back HIV positive. It was at that point that God really began to get a hold of Christopher's heart. So walking back to his cell, he looks in a garbage can, sees a little book, it's just on top, picks it up. To Gideon's New Testament. Takes it back to his cell, begins to read it. Because he's desperate now. He's, he's totally desperate. He's broken. He winds up getting saved. Make a long story short, God gave him favor, the favor in the eyes of the court system. He served, I think, three years out of a 15 to life sentence. He applied while he was still in prison to go to Moody Bible College. That's the only college who lived in Chicago. They accepted him. That's kind of a neat story, too, how that worked. He goes to college at Moody, graduates. Today he's a professor at Moody Bible College. I mean, it's an incredible story. But it's a story about how prayer is used to save souls. The Billy Grahams... And the Greg Lorries of this world, God bless them. They have the privilege of leading most people to Christ that could say, well, not most, but you understand, a lot of people, millions. Yet God saw the hard work of prayer that went into each one of those con conversions. And I believe the prayer warriors will be the most blessed of anybody in the kingdom. All right, let me just finish. Verses 39 to 42. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him. Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that he is indeed the Christ. Wow, the Savior of the world. Let me just end by saying this, guys, and I really don't have time to elaborate on it. I'm, I'm just running out of time. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They were defiled in their eyes. They believed God could not love or even save the Samaritans. They were too far gone. They were, they were a hopeless cause. But Jesus didn't feel that way, and he went and sought them out, the despised, the rejected, to save them. You know, Cindy and I just came back from Indianapolis on Saturday. Spent a few days down there at a pastor's and wife's get-together. A lot of Calvary guys that are older now, some of them older than me, which is hard to believe, some of them older than me. Some of these guys had gotten saved right when the Jesus movement was really going in, the, in California. And uh, they were drug dealers, drug addicts. They were, you know, just families had written them off. They were, they were just despised. 
they, they lived as bums on the beach, many of them just, you know, hanging out, taking drugs, having sex. But then God began to work. He primarily used a man named Chuck Smith to start a movement that had an impact that the world is still trying to come to terms with. How these men and women, whose lives were basically over, written off by their families, when they received Christ, all of a sudden they were transformed. Today they're missionaries, they're pastors, Christian workers, Christian moms and dads, that's very important. Not a few, I've read stories where when they got saved and were on fire for Christ, they went to the mainline churches because uh, they didn't know anything else. They went to church, met at the door by deacons or assistant pastors who said, when you cut your hair, when you, when you change your clothes, when you, you, know, when you look, shave your beard, you come back. That's why Calvary Chapel grew so fast, because Chuck and the people at Calvary Chapel opened their arms to these rejects. They, these hippies were the Samaritans of their day. Of course, the Jewish people rejected the Samaritans, and here they are get saved. They got saved. And yet all the religious folks down in Israel, Jerusalem primarily, went to the temple, but they were dead as stone. They, they were dead and unsaved. It's like a lot of these folks at these mainline churches were back then. They had church, but they didn't have a relationship. They went through ceremonies and rituals. They prayed prayers and sang songs, but their hearts were not really given to Christ. My point is, God, guys, and we're done. We need to have, this is, God's got to do this, so I'm asking you to pray. We need to have the heart of God for the lost. We need to pray that God brings in the Samaritans. And you'll know them when you see them because they're all tatted up with body piercings and weird clothes. And you'll know them when they walk in the door. Here's the challenge. Will you say in your heart, if you clean yourself up and get rid of the, ear, the body piercings and Come back and you can fellowship with me. Or are we going to have the love of God in our hearts that says, Hey, welcome. I've been praying for you to come. Come in. I want you to introduce you to my Savior. Let me tell you what he did for me. I was into drugs. I was a hopeless alcoholic. My marriage was on the rocks. In desperation, I picked up a Bible or I went to church and I found Christ. I've never been the same again. Come, sit with me. I want to get to know you so I can know what to pray for you about. God, give us grace. We welcome into our church the broken the forsaken, the helpless, the hopeless, and say, look, this is a place where you're welcome. This is a place where there's always hope because Jesus is in this place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you saved us. 
Oh, Lord, forgive us for being self-righteous like the older brother of the prodigal son. Forgive us if we become religious, in a sense. Um, the frozen chosen. Lord, give us grace that we love people with your heart. Your, your, your heart is for the lost, Lord. Give us grace to look past the rough exterior to see a hurting, broken heart. That we might be a source of healing, a channel of your love. Give us grace, Lord, to be a church that opens its arms to the rejects of society. Father, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.